Good morning and welcome to We Are Just Christians. Thanks for tuning into the show today. We're really glad you can be here. Hope you can stay with us for the next hour. We'll be on this morning until 10 o'clock. Usually, We Are Just Christians is a live call-in show, but today it's not going to be live. This is a recording made a couple days ago, and so we're not going to be taking any calls today. I have to be out of town for a family reunion this weekend, so we can't take any calls. But I'll be giving you the text numbers in just a moment. You certainly can respond to the show uh, during the week or today or during the week if you'd like to by text. But we'd be glad to have your comments. My name is Mike Schmidt. I'm the preacher and one of the elders for the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. And with me as usual is my partner, Gary Jones. How you doing, Gary? I'm doing good this morning, Mike. Good. That's great. We're going to have a discussion about a few issues today, and we would invite your comments. Of course, as I mentioned, we can't respond now, but we would respond later on. So if you'd like to reach us by text on this show anytime, you can call one or two numbers. They're kind of similar. One's mine, one's Gary's. The first one is 772-260-6120. That's me, Mike Schmidt. The second number is Gary Jones, 772-260-6220 is his text number, so we'd be glad to hear from you. And you can also reach the show by email at justchristians at att.net, justchristians at att.net. I suppose, Gary, I should go ahead and give the mailing address for the building here. We have received letters. In fact, we got a, a long letter uh, uh, last week, I haven't been able to really respond to it. wasn't able to respond bef- to the show uh, during the show last week, and not able to do that this week since I wanted to be do that live. But you can reach the show by by mail by snail mail at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard in Port St. Lucie, uh, Florida 34953. That's Church of Christ, 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard. Port St. Lucie, Florida, 34953. And Savona is S-A-V-O-N-A if you want to uh, write us a letter. We'll be glad to hear from you by, by snail mail, by email, by text, or by a live phone call. That'd be great. We'd be glad to hear from you. But uh, we got to, as we mentioned, we can't take any calls. We've got a couple different subjects we want to talk about today. So we invite your attention to these. We're going to start off, Gary. You, Gary said you had some things you want to talk about, well, so... Last week, Mike, last week, Mike, we talked about eschatology, the study of end times or end things. Eschatosis, the Greek word for last, I think. Right. Yes. And, and basically the idea of premillennialism, which is the church is supposed to have been a earthly kingdom when Jesus came, and he was supposed to set up an earthly kingdom, and he couldn't do it. God couldn't do that, couldn't accomplish it. So he substituted the spiritual kingdom, the church, in its place, and basically that at some point in the future, he's going to have to come back and try again. Right. And Called so, the parenthesis theory. Right. right. So yes. we're living, according to that theory, in a parenthesis in time. Now, I believe you don't believe that, and I don't believe that oh, Scripture totally don't believe support, that. supports that. And I just wanted to point out a couple of passages. Actually, there's three that I think we should think about when we say that God didn't accomplish what he set out to do, which that really bothers me in a sense. And the first one is Job 42 and verses 1 and 2. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Now, if that's true, and I, and I think that's basically what one of the tenets of Calvinism is, God controls everything. Nothing's done without God 
uh, actually allowing it or producing the results, then how is it that he failed at something? That that's the point I would make. That, that, that scripture just doesn't go along with that idea. Another one is um, Jesus speaking to the apostles in Luke 18. Now there are similar passages, I believe, in the other gospels, but in Luke 18, beginning in verse 31, it says he. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon, and they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will arise again. Now, what did Jesus mean by all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished? Yes. To me, that means all things. He came. He he was prophesied that he would establish a kingdom, and right. there you go. And there you go. Basically, all it, things in some form in the Old Testament, whether it was symbolically or in a different language, different type or sort of language, these things were prophesied in the Old Testament. You know, Gary, I think this came up last week or the week before. How we got off on what we would generally call eschatology. I think I mentioned that. Uh, Every generation thinks it's, the last. thinks it's the last generation is how we got off on that. But this is a, a huge subject. And, of course, fulfilled prophecy, as I mentioned last week, is one of the greatest proofs of the divinity of the Bible, inspiration of the Bible, much less the divinity of Christ. So we're, we're not diminishing prophecy. We believe 100% in Bible prophecy. What we disagree with is the popular conception that prophecy is meant to show us when to take our money out of the bank because the world's about to end, you see, or something right. like that. Or that we can interpret uh, the signs of, uh, I saw an article years ago I always referred to, of, of a bus in Jerusalem with a number 666 in the license plate, and this was evidence that the Antichrist was in Jerusalem. You know, you know this kind of thing that we hear all the time by supposedly you know, intellectual Christians. Well, I read a study the other day, Gary, I was going to maybe bring it up, I won't get to go into that, but the survey says, as uh, the TV show says, eight in ten pastors say that the current events are an indication of the end times. And that was before we had all the rioting. That was right. just the coronavirus. So I'm not sure what the thing is now. Now, historically, what, what this is called in religious circles is dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism. So they they divide up the time into seven or eight different dispensations according to whichever theologian supposedly is doing this. This became popular. Well, let me say this way. This sounds like a long time ago, but this kind of thinking about the scriptures did not become popular until the 1800s. Actually, the late 1800s right. is when dispensational premillennialism came into, into play and it's kind of taken over the Protestant world, as it were, and some of Catholicism, I suppose. And now it's the common thinking that any time anything happens, it's got to be the end of the world. But this thinking started by uh, A.N. Darby, I think it was, and J- Schofield, and you have the Schofield Reference Bible, which you have one, throw it away because it's got all kind of cross-refer- cross-references are no good. Right. Because they always will take you down this rabbit hole of linking these prophecies up to prove premillennial dispensationalism. Now, I, I had a discussion with a, uh, a pastor from another church I met in a restaurant a couple weeks ago, a really nice fellow. I wish I could think of his name off the top of my head, but I can't. Real nice fellow in his family. We, we met each other in Olive Garden 
And of course, he he was uh, had been preaching that morning on this very thing about you know the coronavirus being evidence of the second coming. So he asked me what I thought about that, and I thought, well, I am not a premillennialist, and I'm not a postmillennialist, which used to be popular until the Civil War. But I am an maybe, amillennialist. May, may, maybe we ought to explain well, that. I was going to define that, those terms. The a, idea of a millennium comes from what's from in the, the from the two thousand year thousand uh, year one thousand year um, reign period in, of time in mentioned in the in 20. the last okay. last yeah. chap chap last few chapters of right. Revelation, Revelation twenty. And of course, that's never linked up to really the end of time per se, unless you take a certain interpretation of the Book of Revelation. And uh, all that, but the, the, the pre-millennial list believes that Christ will come before or pre the millennium. Or, ma- so, or makes so the assumption that that millennial reign is on is earth. It's a literal reign, reign, reign on, on earth. earth, and that the things will get worse and worse and worse until Christ comes just before the millennium, defeats the enemies, and then ushers in a thousand years of peace and prosperity. That's the general pre-millennial theory. He'll bring his kingdom into the world, which would be the thousand years, is Christ's kingdom. And that's when we'll have peace and harmony. And that's the one that should have been created back when he first came. They say it's David's kingdom. He'll come and sit on David's throne. And so it's David's kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And we'll come to that in just a minute. But then the post-millennialist believes, and this was popular until the Civil War in the United States. Most of your great-grandfathers probably were post-millennialists. That that their great great grandfather, being old you are, but but that the world will get better and better until Christ comes and establishes his kingdom. So it, they believe that Christ comes after the thousand year reign of pros, peace and prosperity at the end. You see, and then all millennialist believes that the millennium, as spoken in the Bible, is not a literal one thousand years in history, but it's a symbolic period of time. And I would fall and in that. I category. fall in that category because it relates to the other. In relation to the other periods of time in the book of Revelation in its context, to the three and a half years and the seven years and this and that and the other, it has a relationship to those kinds of numbers. It isn't about literal 1,000 years on earth. And so there's so many problems with this premillennial theory, but it's remained popular now for 150 years or so. And uh, I think it's kind of become, oh, well, you're the, you're the real rare bird that doesn't believe in that. Well, I, I'm not the odd one in history. Let's put it this way to you. The odd one in history from the t- time of Christ till now is the dispensational premillennials. just doesn't look like it right now in 21st century America. But there's so many scriptural problems with this theory and assumptions that you have to make. Just like you have to make the assumption sometimes that the man of sin and Second Thessalonians is the same as the Antichrist, and that's the same as this, and you have to, the, the, the king in Babylon, you have to make all these assumptions, which you don't have any real scriptural basis for doing, to are come the, up with some are, of the are theories. The ass- are the assumptions that the dragon or some of the other characters are the Antichrist in, in Revelation? Why? Because Much Revelation, less telling you who that person is. All right, because... Whether it's Mussolini or... You know, like, like we've said, you know, the Antichrist is mentioned only in three places, I believe. And it says he's already, he's already here in, he's in, already. in the book of John, First John. Now, there's a couple of passages that I think, besides the ones you mentioned, Gary, when you said this, my mind immediately raced to two or three places. If you want me to go there, you want to finish up. Well, I wanted to quote one more passage that I think comes from John 17. And Jesus is talking. Now, this is his prayer in the Garden of uh, uh, 
Gethsemane just before his crucifixion. So this is just before his, the end of his, his time on earth, relatively speaking. And he says, Jesus spoke these words and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you as you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as who have given him. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth. Now watch this. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. So the work that Christ intended to do was finished during his lifetime. During his lifetime on earth. This means there's nothing else that he was given to do later, but the kingdom that he was prophesied to be king over should have been in the... Well, that goes with this passage in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, at the day of Pentecost, when the church was established. Uh... Peter says in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Gary, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by God to you, by miracles, wonders, signs, and which God did through him in your midst, you yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So he speaks of the death, burial, and resurrection, resurrection. of Christ in the first century. For David, and he quotes prophecy then to show this is the right event. For David says concerning him, this is Second Samuel 7 he's quoting, by the way, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. I think that may be Psalm 110. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad, moreover my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, you have made known full your joy. And he says, Men and brethren, I speak freely to you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with, with us to this day. What he's saying is, David prophesied that the one who would come from his loins would sit on his throne, and he says, David didn't come back to do that himself, but look what he says. David, therefore being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades. He says here, clearly, plainly, that Christ was seated on the throne of David at his resurrection. Right. The way a premillennialist has to read this, they don't ever talk about this passage, by the way, in their books, that I can find, hardly ever, because it's so damning. He said, it would have to read this way, Gary, if, if premillennialism millennialism is true, and that Christ did not establish his, the whole point behind this parenthesis theory is that when Christ came the first time, the Jews prevented Christ from setting up his kingdom because they rejected him. And since they rejected Christ, he couldn't set up his kingdom. And so we have, we have this parenthesis in church history where God's purpose has been frustrated. And he created the church as kind of a parenthesis or an afterthought. And then later Christ is going to come again, his second coming, and bring in the kingdom that he couldn't establish the first time he came. Notice what Peter says. He said that he swore with an oath that one would sit on his uh, throne according to the flesh. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. It doesn't say he foreseeing this spoke 
of the millennial kingdom or the second coming of Christ. The event that they have put here, would have to put here in this passage to usher in the throne of David being occupied would be the second coming of Christ. This passage says that his kingdom was ushered in and Christ sat on his throne during his first coming when he came the first time he sat on when he was resurrected. And those words of David were basically what Luke is referring to in 18 when he says exactly. all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He was going to Jerusalem to do that very thing. Exactly. That's what made me think of that passage. Well, you also have this passage in Psalm 2, Gary, um, that relates to the idea of here are these people saying that God could not accomplish and did not accomplish his purpose in bringing Christ into the world the first time because he had, you have to have this parenthesis. Uh, you have Psalm 2, very similar to the one you read. Yeah. I don't know if you have that up there. But why, why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing, a plot of vain things? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's the Messiah, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So here are the nations and the people, like the Romans and the Jews, saying we're not going to submit to the Christ when he comes, right? Right. And uh, he who sits in the heavens, verse 4, shall laugh. The Lord will hold them in derision. And he will speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet, he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he goes on to say, you are my son, today have I begotten you. Now, the New Testament links that up to the resurrection of Christ. This day have I begotten you is the resurrection day. And so, in this passage in Psalm 2 says, the people can say that they don't want Christ to be the king. But God will laugh at them and he's going to set him on his holy hill in Zion and make him the king whether they want to him to be or not. Well, that's a parallel passage, I think, to what Job says, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Basically, it's very foolish to think that God plans on doing something and then he can't do it. So there's, Yeah, so there's only going to... I, re, I reject the parenthesis theory on that verse alone, almost, that concept alone. Now, if you're going to maintain something like that, you would have to, uh, to me, scripturally say, well, God, God planned it this way all along. But now the trouble with that view is you can take that view, but that's not what the books say is premillennial dispensationalism. And they always try to link it up to the fact that the prophecies of the Old Testament were not fulfilled. The point we're making is that God did fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament during the lifetime of Christ and the apostles. They were fulfilled. The kingdom has come. Christ has been seated on his throne. We're now living in the millennium or the reign of Christ. That's what we're experiencing today. And that period of time and then is later called the church. Well, we'll go back to that. You can't go back and rewrite the prophecies now and make it fit what you want it to be. Well, it's, it, God planned it this way. That's exactly what Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 23. He said, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. He was delivered up to them by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. That was God's plan. Right. That's what Peter's saying. That was God's plan from the beginning. So here, here's another scripture in Acts chapter 3. We could probably could read a little more of the context, and if you want to text or call about this later, that's fine, but we we'll take the time to do that this morning. But in Acts 3, based on what Gary's just saying, here's Peter again speaking. He says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, verse 22, Acts 3, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that will not hear of that prophet will be utterly destroyed from the people. Yes, 
and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken have foretold these days. And he goes on to quote the promise given to Abraham that in Christ all nations would be blessed and he's going to raise up his servant and so forth and this, that, and the other. So Peter plainly says in a generic way that the Old Testament prophecies were to be fulfilled in these days, the days of Peter and the apostles. So are we looking for them to be fulfilled in these days that we're living in 2,020 years later, 2,000 years later? No, we're not because they've been fulfilled already. The, the, the Old Testament prophets have been fulfilled in the time of Christ and the apostles. Now, some would say, and you and I believe, that the time of the Messiah is still going on. Yes. So perhaps there's something, but when we go and read the Old Testament prophecies that are linked to the establishment of the kingdom and so forth, those prophecies have already been fulfilled, and that's what he's talking about here in Acts chapter 3. So there are several reasons why Gary and I are not premillennial dispensationalists and why we would encourage you to rethink this theory, and especially the idea that every event that happens in the Middle East or in our country is somehow it's linked somehow to Bible prophecy. future to us. Is it just not? Yes, and that you need to be concerned about that from a standpoint of biblical prophecy. Uh, the, the, problem, the thing about human behavior and history and politics and all that, and the reason things look similar, is because humans are the same, and God's manner of dealing with humans is the same. He doesn't change his methods of disciplining and chastising people and judging the nations down through time. And human behavior hasn't changed. We always have those who want to exalt themselves up, cast aside Christ and his will, human behavior, human sin, human fear. All those things are still the same. And so you have this repeating of human events. That's why the book of Revelation, which is mostly a history of things that have already happened, sometimes looks so current and so future. Because it's just a repetition of what happens in societies when they walk away from God or when God judges them. It isn't that those prophecies are being fulfilled today because they weren't fulfilled back then. It's because human behavior and God's behavior remain the same. Well, not only did Peter say essentially the same thing in Acts 3, but he did in Acts 2. If you go back a little bit further in, in verse 15... Peter is talking to them after they're speaking in tongues and everybody's worried about, you know, what is this what we're seeing, what's going on here? Peter says, these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. He's saying what you're looking at right now was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And look how Joel opens it up. He says, and it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. And people think that's some kind of prophecy about what they're doing today. It's not. It, it's a prophecy. It, basically, the prophet Joel is saying, you're looking at the last days there on the day of Pentecost. Uh, we're living in the last days because that's what we see. This is, this is the establishment of the church. I would say if there is a term for the last days, we're probably living in them right now, not looking forward to them. Say, say so, that again. Well, we're living in what I would equivalent to what I think Joel is referring to as the last days. We're living in them now. Peter initiated them, said, this is it. This is what you're looking at. We're living in them now. They're not yet future to us. The last days are not yet to come. They're here now. Right. In that sense. Yes, I got you. That's exactly what I think is right. Well, here's this article. Uh, is it from Christianity Today or somewhere by Michael Faust? Eight in ten pastors say current events are a sign of Jesus' return. The, uh, from LifeWay Research, 
The overwhelming majority of pastors say specific current events are a sign of the end times. According to a new survey, a thousand evangelical and historically black church pastors found that 97% believe that Jesus will literally and personally return to earth again. Oh, I believe that. That's true. doesn't say he's going to reign on the earth again. That's said he can't happen that way in the Bible, in Jeremiah. But then but 56% believe that Jesus will return in their lifetime. So if you just want to take a poll and let pastors, the majority of pastors, decide for you what you ought to believe, there you have it. Now, my friends, if you've listened to the show more than 10 minutes, you, you'll know that Gary and I reject <laughs> that way of determining what is true. Take a poll of pastors. My wife laughs at me because I've said for 45 years, you can stick a microphone in front of anybody called a clergyman, and you're liable to hear almost anything. The news media can go around and put a microphone in front of clergymen, and they can come up with whatever quote they want for their news story. I've seen it over and over again because quote-unquote clergymen will say almost anything. That's not the question. But the important thing for you as listeners to understand is what does the Bible say exactly. about that, not what a clergyman or a majority of clergymen say. If you're afraid to go against the majority of clergymen, then I don't, I don't guess I have much else to say. For, I, I don't know what else to say to you about that. You need to look at what the Bible says about it. So it says 80, in each option it says... Um, Pastors were also asked if they consider any of the following types of current events to be the birth pains that Jesus was referring to when he was asked by his disciples when he, when he would return. Of course, they, they completely muddled up Matthew 24 in that question. Right. You could ask the wrong question and get whatever answer you want also. It referenced his words. So in each option, pastors said they reviewed it as a sign of Jesus' return. 83% the rise of false prophets and false teachings. My goodness, there have been false prophets and false teachings way longer than I've been alive. I mean, I've, been, oh, yes. I've, I've done a lot of reading in church history to see this always been a problem. There, there were 23, I think it was, false messiahs around the time of Christ who arose. That's why the Jews were somewhat suspicious of him. And, uh, and you read Gamaliel's speech to them, you know. Yes. He said basically... So many people that rose and followed this guy, and yet he wasn't. And see, he... historically, when Jesus says is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew twenty-four, and he cites this point, the very statistic I gave you historically verifies what Jesus was saying that they weren't supposed to pay attention to all the right, the false prophets, but they were listening to what he was saying. Well, basically, that's uh, well. There's another part of that too, Mike, and I'll change the subject on you just a little right. bit. Matthew 24 and 6, Jesus, when he starts out talking about this, he says, "You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet." Well, 78 percent, Gary, said wars and natural. National conflicts were a sign of Jesus coming. And Jesus, mean, very, very, it's two things down from where you are right now. So right. the wars and rumors of wars, Jesus says, don't pay attention to it. They say it's a sign. Okay. Well, Jesus said it's not the sign. Uh, that, that's what I'm trying to say. That's exactly right. Eighty-one percent said, "Well, the love of many believers growing cold is a sign." When has that not been true? But he was pointing out at that event, they could, that's something those people alive could see that happen. Traditional morals, 79% said traditional morals becoming less accepted. Of course, ironically enough, a lot of those same people are against traditional morals. You can ask another group of pastors if they agree <laughs> with traditional morals, and they'll say no. That's what I'm saying. Stick the microphone in different clergymen's faces and see what answers you get on traditional right. morals. 
Seventy-six uh, percent earthquakes, other national disasters. I think that I think earthquakes and national disasters are actually down from a long while back, from a couple centuries ago, from even with our modern ways of recording them. Seventy-five percent. The number of people abandoning their Christian faith is a sign. Famines, anti-Semitism toward Jewish people worldwide. Well, let me tell you something. This is not the worst time for to be for anti-Semitism that I can think of in a little bit of reading I've done in history. Let me yeah. tell you that. Okay? Yeah, and depending they on used to where have the entire are, Catholic Church against them in Europe. Right. Okay. Or the entire, officially against or them. Or the entire German government in World right. War II. Right. Now, those two things are related, by the way. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> my family are German Catholics, and I understand that whole problem of anti-Semitism from that standpoint. So this is the kind of thing... Um, 40% it says well and meanwhile it says most pastors also believe that moder- the modern nation of Israel has a role in the end times a total of 70% agreed that the modern rebirth of the state of Israel and the regathering of millions of Jewish people are fulfillments of Bible prophecy the only trouble with that is those Jews don't believe in God or Christ but uh, a full 40% of pastors believe that quote, the Christian church has fulfilled or replaced the nation of Israel in God's plan. So there's 40%. And uh, the survey also asked pastors and their views on amillennialism. This is what we talked about before. See, it's not just me being crazy. This is in, in a national magazine. Amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. 60% believe uh, most of them thought, most of them considered themselves to be premillennial. 60% believe the millennium is a thousand year literal thousand year period of time during which Jesus reigns on earth following his second coming 21% believe the millennium is a symbolic way of describing the period between Christ's ascension and second coming where Christ is reigning spiritually often called amillennialism so there's 21% of amillennialists and 9% believe it's not a literal 1000 years but an era in which the world will gradually grow more Christian and just ending with Christ's second coming that's called postmillennialism that's very I can say the Second World War in the United States and around the First and Second World Wars in the world destroyed that view that the world was getting better and Christ was going to right. come at the end of this period of time. The 1800s were a time, in early 1900s time, when people thought the world was getting a lot better. And then it, the Great Depression, World War One, the Civil War, all those things just destroyed that general attitude and so forth. So, uh, interesting. Here, read, Here's the last paragraph, Gary. I know you're bored with this, but the current global pandemic will create interest among churchgoers and non-religious people about what the Bible says about plagues, disorders, and natural disasters and the end times, said this McConnell preacher. The urgency pastors feel is less about stockpiling toilet paper and more about helping people be ready for Christ's return. So, well, well, how are you going to be ready in their view for Christ's return if it's going to be a millennium on the earth? The way you do that is you get yourself ready to live in a kingdom on the earth. I believe that we are to watch and pray because we don't know the hour when the Lord will come and we'll be prepared for his return, but it's not to live on the earth. Well, it's I think a spiritual that was, preparation, not a material preparation. That was the point that, I, that, that got me off on this, basically, that we made in last week's session, that basically the message is virtually everywhere, not exactly when he's going to return, but that you need to be repaired, prepared because he is going to return. Mm-hmm. So th- that's, that's the real message that we need to push. Uh, I, you know, like you said, 
clergy will say anything, and I've heard preachers even say they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, we could spend the entire show talking about well, how it, important it, that is. It doesn't impress me to say, well, a certain percentage of preachers or pastors or whatever you want to say believe such and such. And such. That's, to that's me, being one myself, that's not very impressive. impressive. Okay? It's like saying X number of lawyers believe this or whatever. Uh, yeah. Okay. Or uh, senators. You know, we take a poll of senators, I guess, and we're supposed to decide what's right or wrong. I guess we can decide what law we're going to pass, but we're not going to be able to know what's right or wrong by taking a poll of senators. Right. And, and sometimes that's true about people who call themselves clergymen. And it's interesting that the people who disrespect the clergy so much are willing to take whatever they say like this and think that that's correct. It's an ironic or basically they take it and say that that's what all Christians believe and then now they're going to consider they're going to criticize Christians right, for that right. this, this is but the whole thing goes back to I pointed out these passages primarily Mike because I want our listeners to try to understand the point of the show and, and you and I in our point of approach to the scriptures is that we need to see it in the scriptures. We don't need to make these judgments based on what someone else says or emotion. We need to look directly at what the scripture says and analyze it relative to what we're being taught. That's the important thing. That's exactly right. You know, some, some I probably have in my voice today, just thinking about it, a little frustration is showing through some of this. Maybe you're picking up what you might consider a poor attitude. I, I hope that's not the case. But I, part of that will be because over my time as a preacher for the last 45 years, uh, this has been a frustrating subject because so many people have been diverted away from the things the Bible teaches them about what they can do about their personal life and salvation to please the Lord by concern about these kinds of issues. It's a distraction to people to be able to watch and pray for the Lord's return because they're more concerned about interpreting some sign that they think they've got than they are about changing their character through the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And that's the frustrating part, and they don't get anywhere. But the problem is... And that's why you see so much immorality, because people are more concerned about that prophecy thing than they are about how to be a, a decent person. Well, that prophecy thing in their mind is a sign. They want to see the sign. What did Jesus say about those who wanted to see a sign? Right. But basically, what you need to look for is the prophecy being fulfilled in the Scripture gave, is the sign. Yes, I have the signs that I need. They're in Scripture. The fulfilled prophecies of Scripture are the signs. Exactly. They're the same sign for me as they were for the people of that day. They're the same signs, and my great-grandchildren is going to be a sign for them, too, if the Lord doesn't return. So it's, it's frustrating to me about this, and it is just continually, because I also see people being led astray in that they're, sometimes we see them led astray into giving more and more money to these kind of pastors and preachers and churches because of the preaching of the second coming is about to happen any time. The third, the, another factor that is kind of frustrating to me, Gary, is, as I mentioned, maybe it was last week, I don't think I made my point very clear, uh, between Stewart and Palm City, I saw two foot spas, not spas, but two foot spas. I was laughing about this with my wife. We live in such a pampered and decadent age and in a country in which you can make a living pampering people's feet. Who would have ever thunk it, as they say, that you could make it only in America, almost, and in the Western world with capitalism, can you make a living pampering people's feet? 
that there are enough pe- people. I can't imagine my my grandmother in Kentucky, uh, as a farm woman years ago, raising her kids in the Depression, being worried about her toenails. I mean, maybe she was somewhere way, way, way down the list. Now, I'm not saying we should return to that time because if she was alive today, she wouldn't want to go back to that time. But I am saying, a lot of this, a lot of the reaction people have to diseases and other things that go on, what we call injustice, is because we live in an age in which we face so little dis- true problems. We can get our diseases treated. We can be cured. We can live long lives and healthy lives for the most part. We live, uh, everything is around us engineered for safety. And yet we think we live in the worst possible time. We can order our food, have it delivered, and nobody even touches the stuff. You know, we, we can do all these things and we have the resource to do the most of us do. And yet those very same people are the ones who say we're living in the worst time ever. And yet you have people like my grandmother and grandfather who raised five kids in the Depression got burned out three times. And my grandfather didn't eat a lot of meals because there just wasn't any food. And they, I can tell you, they did not think that they were some special generation that was the worst possible time they ever lived. So there's a connection between this this prof- prophetic end of the world stuff and our decadent society. There's but I'll a connection bet he, there I'll, somewhere. I'll bet he had an attitude towards his family that they ate before he did. Oh, that's exactly the point I was making. His kids ate, if there was any food at all, and his wife ate, but he didn't eat. And he was the one out working in the sun every day. Well, my grandmother was too. So, so the point is that the, 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 there's a correlation somewhere between people living lives of that are sheltered and protected and this end of the world thing being so critical to them and thinking that it's the worst time to ever be alive. And unfortunately, religious charlatans play upon this fear. They play upon it and have in the past and they will continue to do so. And so that's part of the reason why in my voice I'm sure I sound frustrated. Rather than focusing, I get irritated when people come to my door over the years trying to teach me as a stranger what some... uh, Obscure prophecy in Ezekiel and Isaiah or Jeremiah says, Zechariah, rather than teach me how to become a Christian. I don't, I, I bring this up to, of course, I know about those prophecies, but most people don't. And so when you have somebody come to your door, listeners, and the first thing they want to talk to you about is some obscure prophecy and some vague reference to the book of Revelation, you need to be aware that you're not dealing with someone who's going to teach you the vitals about how to become a Christian, how to please God, how to become a servant of the Lord. Your person there is going to play on your fears and your ignorance about those Bible, obscure or controversial Bible passages. And my opinion is they're going to lead you astray in that if you let them. So anyway, and I tell them that when, when we have a discussion at my door. Well, one of the things that you recognize that with is they're generally only going to use one passage or maybe two. They're not going to use the context of the Bible and the overall outline within it to to show you what's going on. You have to know more than just one Bible prophecy to understand the context and the outline of what the Bible is trying to teach you. You have to know more than one passage. And that's what bothers me about what you said earlier, that you're distracted from understanding what you can do concerning your salvation before the Lord. You're distracted from that. It's not just what you can do, it's what God expects you yes, to do. Yes, that's kind of what I was meaning to say. You're right, you're right. It's, it's, 
you have something to do. God expects you to do these things. And you're distracted from that. And if you don't know what he expects of you, how can you do it? That's what the Bible is all about, knowing what God wants of you. That, and that's the point of the prophecy. Even the prophecy of the end of the world in Second Peter 3, after he tells about the elements being set on fire with fervent heat, etc., etc., he ends it by saying, seeing the, the, this is all to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? be? He doesn't tell you how to gauge the stock market and sell your house. He ta- he's talking about something more practical and down to earth. That, that what we were told about the second coming even is only for the practical purposes of getting us to do what's right now. Not not to give us some specu- oh, some insider secret information. There's none of that in the Bible. There's no secret information in the Bible that's not available to everyone who wants to understand it. There's no secret code. There's no secret code, no numerical codes, no secret knowledge. It's open. And so that's the that's why I guess sometimes I get react I react to it over well, it's, it's, having it's, dealt with this over the years. It's frustrating for the common person to have to wade through this. And the reason I know there's no code like that is because exactly what Jesus said when he was before before the Sanhedrin, what did he say? They said, well, what do you preach? What, what do you do this? And he said, well, do you know what I preached? I preached it openly before you. Peter said, nothing has been done in a corner, secretly in a corner. It's all right there. It's all right there, open for you to see. You see. It's what you do with it. And uh, that's why we're on this show, our basic premise is that you can see and you can understand, you can read the Bible and over a period of time, come to understand what it says, what's expected of you, what God wants you to do, what the will of God is. You can come to understand that. It doesn't take some kind of a clergyman to explain it all to you and believe what he says or some secret code that you have to pay money for. That's the point of this show. It's not that way. And so we, we kind of... And, and it's not just us saying that. The Apostle Paul said that when he wrote, uh, you know the passage, he wrote to them. He said, when you read what I have written, you can understand his knowledge and what God right. wants of Ephesians you. Ephesians 3, 3 through 5. Yeah, I, I underline that passage. Right. That's, very, but you know, Gary, I got That's an important day, passage. I got told the other day by a friend, a well-meaning friend, who is probably more emotionally stable than me. He said, your problem, Mike, is you have too high expectations of people. <laughs> and I had to chew, I've been chewing that ever since. Uh, is that what this is, having too high expectations that people would slowly over time look, read and understand over time these things and think through this without being emotionally led astray uh, by false prophets and false teaching and, and all that? It, it, maybe it is, but I, I don't care. If that, that's the right expectation of people, that's exactly what it, the Jesus well, the apostles say their expectation. Well, that's what is. God's expectation exactly right. of people are. It may be a high one, but that's too bad because that's what it is. And I'm not being, I appreciate my friend saying that to me because I think it helped me with a couple things. You want to change subjects? It's up to you. All right, let's, let's, I, I'm done with my right, subject. Let, let, me give you the, let me give the contact information so they can text us either during this week or next week when we're back on the air live, Lord willing. Well, that only took about three times as long right, as I so thought it would. I told you we can we can milk every cow to death, can't we? <laughs> uh, the numbers to reach us by text uh, during this week is 772-260-6120. That's me. That's Mike Schmidt. 772-260-6120. Or if you want to get a hold of Gary... 772-260-6220 are those numbers, and we really appreciate your text, even if they're critical. We would particularly like to hear from people that don't agree with us, 
because it gives us a different perspective, makes the show interesting, and we promise not to mistreat you or be unfair to you. We certainly can't promise we're going to agree with you when you write a letter or send a text or make a phone call, but we can try to make a promise we're going to be fair to you and let you have the last word. So call in next week or text us during this week, and you can also take a look at our website, wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. You'll find recordings of podcasts of this radio show and sermons, lessons going back for years and years on various subjects at wearejustchristians.com. Well, Gary, this probably deserves more than the 10 or 15 minutes we have left, but I ran across this article the other day, well, a couple years ago, actually. Now I just found it the other day, I guess. Key findings in a landmark pornography study are released. So... You know, uh, this the porn pr- phenomenon, it's called, this study was called, the explosive growth of pornography and how it's impacting your church life and ministry is the name of this study. And it came out of the Barna Group, which is a, a Christian polling organization, pretty well respected, as well as Josh McDowell uh, Ministries and so forth. And there's a, I can give some links if you want to do it, but, uh, you know, as a minister uh, and doing counseling with people, helping people with difficulties. Pornography has, over the years, just become more and more of a problem. I think it's obviously always been there. I mean, we have we have things chiseled in stone that we would call porn, pornographic. We have, uh, you know, sex toys carved out of ivory and rock and all kind of other stuff from ancient times. No, well, I'm not saying well, even, sex toys. What right, I'm saying even, is this has always been a human... Even behavior. the murals in, in Pompeii and sure. things that they were archaeologically uncovered... Uh, At that say, time, being considered pornography, right? Yeah, and but basically, it it one of the things that I think has done more for it than anything else is the internet. Oh, I, yes, that's when the explosive growth took place. I guess you used to have to hide around and try to find a magazine somewhere in, in a store and get someone to buy you one if you were young, and it was much more difficult. And so, uh, or go seek out a, a, a real person, I suppose. But but the internet has made all this easily accessible. And then you couple that with the uh, sociological factors or so- societal factors of isolation and things like that are going on, and a feeling of, the, of yeah. and then couple that with the individualism of our day. You have a whole recipe for for failure here in this regard. Now, this I'm not here just to talk about how awful a person is if they've ever used pornography. I don't believe that. Okay, that you're a horrible, terrible person and it's something that should never be spoken of. I don't believe that. And if you want to come to this church, you're not going to be treated that way just because you had a problem with pornography or currently still have a problem. That's not the Bible approach to this subject. It isn't good. My point about it is not just to shame people because they've looked at pornography or have a problem with it. My point is that it's damaging to them and it's going to destroy them and their relationships. Plus, it's a sin. And therefore... They need to gain some control over that and do something about that, actually try to fix the problem. And I believe there are solutions to that problem. Well, basically, Mike, that's so I'm one... I'm not here just to say na- bad, nasty things about people that look at pornography. That, that solves nothing. But that's one of the things that uh, I'd like to point out. That one of the reasons that I worry so much about my children, my grandchildren, or particularly my grandchildren, because one of them is thinking about entering the military. When you enter the military, it's everywhere. Oh, I'm sure it was even and, when you were in the military. Oh, yes. That was a long it, time ago. That was that was almost fifty years. Well, not before they had guns, but but it was it was almost fifty years ago, and it was everywhere. It was everywhere. You're exposed to it. It, That's that's the way humans are. 
Uh, pornos is the Greek word for flesh. It came to symbol, it came to mean a porneo was originally a term that meant to sell what that should not be sold, and so pornos then became uh, kind of a, a nasty kind of sexuality, not eros, which was love, but pornos was the flesh, and it became a form of fleshliness or lust. And so porno pornography, putting the Greek words together, is the writing or picturing of lust in various forms. Yes. Pornography can take a literary form. There is erotic literature, which is a form of pornography, and it's just words which cause the imagination to go here or there. But it often takes the form of pictures of various kinds, or movies in our day and time, movies. And what happens to the mind when it's in when it engages in this way, it releases the same kind of chemicals during the process of looking at it, much less if it ever, if a person uses the pornography to bring about a sexual climax, it releases the same chemicals you get from a drug addiction in the brain, therefore begins to set in forms of addiction or obsession. I don't believe every person looks at pornography as a sex addict, but it can go to that, direct, that far, and it can certainly create an obsession and the younger that you are when you begin this process, the more devastating the effects can be for you in your life and in your relationships later on. If you think that you're a young person now, you're not married, you think when you get married you can have sex whenever you want to, that your desire to consume pornography will go away, you are completely mistaken. There isn't any evidence for that whatsoever both anecdotally and in actual research that can show that to be true. And I know that's true from speaking to so many different people. It, it just doesn't help it go away because the problem is not that. It's not about a lack of sex. It's another problem that causes a person to be linked to pornography. But listen to these numbers, Gary. Here's the, here's some of the initial key findings. Teens and young adults. Twice as many young adults, age 25 to 30, first view pornography before puberty, than did the next generation, or Gen X. More than 27% of young adults, age 25 to 30, first view pornography before puberty. Gen X, which only about 13%, started viewing porn before puberty. So there's been a shift in some ways to a later time period. But teens and young adults have a cavalier attitude about porn. They consider uh, not recycling you know, more immoral than viewing pornography. Listen to that. They consider... Not recycling. Not recycling your waste. More immoral than viewing pornography. So if you don't put the aluminum cans in the aluminum box in the, in the aluminum uh, recycle bin or throw your stuff in the trash can, you're more immoral to a huge number of them. What is it? One-third say, says viewing, less than one-third say viewing porn is always or usually wrong. Compared to 56% which say that not recycling is usually or always wrong. Almost twice as many young people say that not recycling is wrong compared to that say that viewing pornography is wrong. Now Gary's got this odd look oh, on his face. The, 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 re the reason is, is Sharon and I argue <laughs> about recycling all the time because the rules change every day. Oh, I recycle. I, I have a guy that puts everything in, but, but I don't do it because uh, it's a religion of mine. I just don't believe in wasting things. The, if they can the, reuse it, it's, the, the, the it's not a religion. It doesn't make me more or immoral. That's my point. 
Well, the problem I have with her is, is she tells me, well, here are the rules, and she's probably right. Here are the rules. You put you, this kind of plastic you put in there, this no, kind of plastic no, you don't. I put everything as plastic in one thing, and because you, you know what happened? I used to sort it out by blue bins and yellow bins. I would go out there. I'm the guy, and I'll even, and if you're, some of you are laughing who know me, who know I'm always speaking against this kind of, the kind of environmentalist religion. It's not a religion. It's just I don't want to waste it. So I put all, separate the glass from the paper, from the plastic. And then I watched my recycle guy one day. He takes all my bins and dumps them all in the back of the same truck. Well, that's and I went, what? So I asked the guy, a friend of mine who does recycling, he's the guy that picks up the stuff on the side of the curb, Gary Thompson, and he says, yeah, it all goes to the same place. It's sorted out later. Okay. So now I just <laughs> dump everything together, and they can figure out what plastic goes where. Because I should Well, well that, that was my point, because basically I was saying, I was seeing, see, I, be, the engineer in me looks at things, and I I see what it's made of, not what it's shaped like. Right. And and basically, the decision of where it went was based on how it was shaped. And I was thinking, that no, doesn't make any sense read at all. The symbols at the bottom, and I say, let somebody else read the symbol when they melt it. So but it, the point is, it's not. It should not be a religion. But the young people, it is a religion. And maybe I need to deal with that. Young adults are watching more porn and seeking it out more than any other generation. Among ages 13 to 17, listen, 8% use porn daily, 13 to 17. 18% weekly, 17 once or twice a month. Among ages 18 to 24, 12% daily, 26% weekly. Among ages 25 to 30, 8% daily, 17 and so forth. And so half of all young adults say that most or all of their friends regularly look at pornography. An additional 21% say about half their friends. So there's 70-some percent of young people say that many percent of their friends look at pornography. Of course, that may be off. We don't know. No one really knows. But uh, young adults say they come across porn at least once a week, even when they're not seeking it out. Well, that isn't hard to do. All you got to do is be on the Internet, click on the wrong button, and... Well, if you if you open up your junk folder just to sort your junk mail, you're going to come across pornography. Some of it, yes. Okay. Right. Well, there. there was a time when it was harder to get to, but now today you can blunder into it with just not even right. trying. That's, that's the danger because you never know who's going, who's going to respond to it. And then you've got teenage girls and young women are significantly more likely to actively seek out porn the women age of 25. That's a, that's that, a that, that, thing. Well, that's a surprising... we got girls as young as 8 years old. That's the first time they get exposed to porn. That's when they begin masturbating at 8 or 9 years old for pornography. Well, see, that's the part that surprises me, that the young women would be interested in it, in in, in the fact no, that... It's all changed here. It's, everything's different. Everything's different. I'm way behind the times. Yes, what you definitely are, as far as how things are. And, and that... that fits a lot of different sociological patterns. Maybe it's always been that way. But but uh, pornography, I think it's close to half of all pornography now is viewed by women. That, that That's amazing. They view gay porn. The numbers say that women are viewing gay really? male porn uh, that's made for gay males, but that's where they're looking at it. And that's what the, that's what the porn sites say. Now, maybe they're, maybe they're lying. I, I don't know about that. But it's 40-some percent from what, the last number I read of women pornography is consumed by females. That number used to be probably 5%, you know, back when you and I were young. Uh, now, um, most teens are sexting, either on the receiving end or sending end of sexually explicit images. 60% of teens and young adults with a clear cavalier attitude toward pornography have received a sexually explicit image 
49% of sin was. They send pictures of their genitals to each other. Well, if this is going on, what's happening to uh, out-of-wedlock sex? That's actually going down. It's actually going down. It down. Well, pornography takes care it of it. Takes the, it's substituted and, for well, that. Well, here's the trouble. Pornography, obsession with pornography eventually destroys your relationships with other people. And sometimes the people that, if you've got a husband, for example, who is, who is addicted to pornography, he usually ha- is, that's the, the reason behind that isn't just because he's an evil pervert. It's because he has a difficulty with personal sexuality. He has difficulty relation, r- relating to the actual woman he's living with. It's much more difficult to navigate those emotions and actions with a real person than to turn on a computer and get an image. There's no expectation there. So rather, he may, he may have a wife that's willing and ready to have sexual relations with him, but he'll go to turn to pornography instead of that because it's emotionally more easy. And it doesn't make it more satisfying, but it's easy. And that's why... Or it's, emotion, people, it's emotionally it's so, safer? It's safer, and he doesn't have to navigate dealing with her and her dealing with him and back and forth. And so because of... When you grow up in a home that's been damaged, the relationships have all been damaged, by divorce and all the other abuse and things like that, this becomes a minefield to, to uh, navigate. And so I have sympathy for people in this situation, not just horror or disgust because I know what they're dealing with. Pornography is the symptoms, of, or the real thing behind it is usually personal failure in these regards. And that's why getting married doesn't fix the pornography problem because it's not that's not the cause of it. Now, we're, we're running out of time, Gary. Well, the, the only comment I was going to make is, is basically it, it points to another thing that, that basically these, these single parents who are trying to raise children are raising a generation of children that are far more susceptible to all of these problems. But there's less sex going on today among young people than there was in our generation, Gary, because they can't navigate the personal emotions of it all. It's easy to do it over a telephone or over a computer, even with online sex, but difficult in person. And you and I know this from being married men all these years. We've just lear- we've learned to to live, and we've learned and adjusted and matured. But a lot of people, young adults, haven't been able to do that. You see, and so that's why in Japan it's a big problem. We got about a minute left um, in the show. Uh, I got there's more in the survey. Maybe we can do it some other time. I, I do want to mention a couple things as we close. That Number one, the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard, we've never stopped having services on Sundays here. We have limited our week midweek series of services on Wednesday and Sunday night. We're not having those right now. But you're welcome to join us at 10 a.m. for Bible study on Sunday morning and 11 a.m. for worship on Sunday morning with the communion. We, we do things differently. We've got everybody spaced out. We've got some rows blocked off. The communion is such that no one touches it except you touch your own. And, and so forth. So we've limited and changed the way we've done things for the last few months. But we're welcome for you to, you're welcome to come and be with us during our services. This well, one, one last. 196 Southwest of Illinois. One yeah, last there. mention. I want to mention John 12:48 again. While we're here, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Yes. That's, that's what we're about. Thing, and that's what we're going to encourage you to do when you come is take a look at the Word of God with us. So thanks for being with us today. May God bless you. And tune in again next week to We Are Just Christians. Thank you.